Before we get started in our study this morning, we need to uh, go to the Lord in prayer and ask His guidance and direction on our study today. So let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And, and in your word, you have said that you are unique among the gods because you declare the end from the beginning. You are a God who foretells accurately 100% of the time that which will come to pass because you are not like the gods of human imagination. You are indeed the true God, the God of gods, the creator God who created all things, all things in the heavens, all things on earth, and all things under the earth. And Father, because you are our creator God and the God who planned a perfect salvation, We dedicate our time several times a week to focus on your word, for it's in your word that we learn about you, we learn about our Lord Jesus Christ, and we learn how to live in such a way that it glorifies you, and we learn how to think in such a way that it glorifies you. Now, Father, as we study your word today and continue our study in Revelation, we pray that we might be able to focus on your word and that God the Holy Spirit would challenge each of us in terms of our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. I was reading in a commentary yesterday a statement that reflects my own experience as I have gotten into this particular chapter. And this uh, writer of this commentary stated that this was the most difficult chapter in the Bible to interpret and probably one of the most significant. It is indeed not easy because there are a lot of different elements in this chapter, elements that come from other chapters, other places in the Scripture. And so it depends on how you have understood various other details as to how you will then take all of those conclusions and bring them to this particular passage in order to understand uh, what it is saying. Now, the most important thing that we should do in any Bible study or study of any passage is to look at the context and to have a little review so that we know uh, where we are in the text. Now, the book of Revelation is a book that talks about, in the first chapter, things that occurred when John was on the Isle of Patmos. Chapters 2 and 3 talk about the trends in the church age as they are uh, instantiated in, th- in those seven churches that are the subject of those seven letters in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. Beginning in chapter 4, the shift is to future things, that which will come to pass after these things, John says in Revelation 4.1. Revelation 4 and 5 talk about what is happening in the heavens. And then beginning in chapter 6, The focus is on that period known as the tribulation. Now, the rapture of the church occurs before the tribulation takes place. uh, There's some sort of transition period. We don't know how long it will be between the rapture and the beginning of this seven-year period known as the tribulation or sometimes referred to as Daniel's 70th week based on an understanding of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. That really gives us the... uh, chronological framework for understanding the tribulation period. It's a period of seven years. 
that's divided into two, three-and-a-half-year segments. What distinguishes the first half from the second half is a uh, visible event that occurs in Jerusalem when that future uh, figure known as the Antichrist desecrates a temple in Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, the tribulation temple, and that signals an, a change in what will transpire during the tribulation period. Now, the trouble that people have is trying to figure out how the details of Revelation chapter 4 through 19 fit within that three-and-a-half-year first half and three-and-a-half-year second half, how they relate to the uh, that event in the midpoint known as the abomination of desolation. We've gone through these details in the past as to why I've concluded this chronology, and we'll just touch on that a little bit later on. But there are in the tribulation period, there are three series of judgments. The first series are called the seal judgments. The seventh seal judgment, when that seventh seal is broken on the scroll that is given to the Lord Jesus Christ, sort of a title deed to his rule on the planet, the seventh seal is broken and it reveals a second series of judgments called trumpet judgments. These are covered in 8, 7 through 9, 21. That's the first six. The seventh trumpet is going to be blown, and that will reveal seven bold judgments. So if you can just think your way through these seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bold judgments, then you have a handle on the basic structure of the tribulation period. I see that the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments uh, occur prior to the midpoint of the tribulation, and the bold judgments take place after that. Now, there is a gap, as you can see from the uh, chapter numbers on these divisions between the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 15. That's the section in which we find ourselves. In Revelation chapter 10, uh, verse 1, there is the appearance of this strong angel or mighty angel who appears and has a little book in his hand, and this little book is, uh, I believe, contains the elements of the events that will that are covered between chapters 10 and chapter 14. And so we've looked at this brief overview of this section dealing with the tribulation period. For these, each of these events that occurs in 11 through 14 actually sort of goes back in time. Uh, dealing with a particular theme, and then sort of brings us up to date to the midpoint of the tribulation period. So that chapter 11 focuses on these two witnesses that appear in Jerusalem and will have a ministry to the remnant of Israel, that is, believing Jews, uh, that is, those Jews who have trusted in Jesus as the Messiah following the uh, rapture of the church, this would perhaps include the 144,000 or some of them that were located in Israel as well as others. So the focus of chapter 11 is on the two witnesses and the remnant. Chapter 12 focuses on the remnant. This is depicted as, uh, depicts Israel as the woman, goes back and shows that it is the woman who gives birth to a male child. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And then depicts the persecution of the woman as she then flees from the Antichrist into the uh, wilderness during the second half 
of the tribulation period, fleeing from the dragon Satan who is persecuting her. Chapter 13 then focuses on the personages of the dragon and the two beasts. The first beast is the Antichrist, the second beast, the false prophet, and the thinking of those uh, on the earth who have rejected God, rejected Christ, who are set in their hostility to God, and no matter what God does in reaching out to them in grace, they cont- all it does is make them uh, more set in their uh, rejection of God and more hostile to God. That's chapter 13. And then finally, chapter 14, we see these three uh, angels making announcements in the heavens. And so throughout this section, we see that in the tribulation period, uh, the angelic beings, both fallen angels and elect angels, will become visible, and there will be a greater interaction between angelic beings and human beings on the earth. So that's the overview of the content of the little book prophecies from chapter 10 through chapter 11. This morning we come to chapter 11, and the first verse brings up an import, several important questions that must be answered before we can really understand what is happening in this chapter. So Revelation 11.1 one reads, Then I, that's John, I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for the 42 months. Now, as we get into thinking about this passage, we have to address... um, a number of important uh, questions. And one of these questions is just when does this take place? When does this measuring take place? Is it at the midpoint of the tribulation? Is it at the, uh, in the, at the beginning of the second half of the tribulation? Or is it, is it much earlier? Now, as we look at the text, it's important to see where these chapters fit within what God has already revealed. That gives us certain contextual clues for the chronology. Chapter 9 records the trumpet judgments. Uh, Chapters 8 and 9 record the trumpet judgments. And in chapter 9, we have the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments described. Both of these involve... Uh, demonic activity. The last three of the seven trumpet judgments are identified as woe judgments. This is seen in Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. John says, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in midheaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So these last three trumpet judgments, the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet judgments are also woe judgments. This indicates an intensity in these judgments. Then the third thing we recognize is that the section from 10.1 to 11.13 takes place prior to the end of the sixth trumpet judgment. 
which was the 200 million demon army that is released from the Euphrates. And that was also the second woe. And in Revelation 11.14, we will read the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. The third woe will be the seventh trumpet judgment or the series of bold judgments. So this informs us chronologically that the events of the two witnesses that are described in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 11 take place before the end of that series of trumpet judgments. And since uh, it has seemed best for us to put those in the first half of the tribulation, this tells us that these witnesses will appear before the middle midpoint of the tribulation. Now, there are a lot of discussions and debates that take place uh, among those who uh, hold to a future view of the book of Revelation and to a dispensational, uh, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view of uh, a prophecy. For those of you who don't know what that means, that means that we believe that that God has uh, ordered history in such a way that that there are different uh, periods of time uh, during which he administers his rule over mankind in different ways and that there are different levels of revelation in each of those periods of time and those periods of time those administrative periods of time are referred to as dispensations Uh, we believe that God has a distinction in his plan for his plan for Israel and his plan for the church and so they're they're not mixed the spiritual life for Israel is different from that of church age believers Jews that are born during the church age and trust in Jesus as their Savior are members of the church. They are not members of Israel. When the church is raptured before the tribulation takes place, then there's a shift back to the focus on Israel because this tribulation period is the last seven-year period in the time frame that God had revealed to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. And that, that's why it's referred to as this 70th week or seven-year period. And this completes the time for Israel, bringing uh, Israel to a point of national recognition of Jesus as their Messiah and Savior during this time. Uh, approximately two-thirds of the Jews who are alive uh, will die during the tribulation period. But at least that many of Gentiles die as well, those Jews that survive are those who have, for the most part, trusted in Jesus as their Messiah. So that gives you a little overview. We believe in that uh, dispensational organization of history. We believe that the church will be taken out of history through an event known as the rapture, and that that precedes the tribulation. There's a period of time, a transition between the rapture and the tribulation, and then the tribulation will follow the events that are described in mostly Daniel and Revelation, but also in Matthew chapter 24, the uh, Olivet Discourse, and a few other places as well. Now, when we come to examine the events in uh, Revelation, there are legitimate disagreements between different, uh, different scholars, and as the years go by, it seems like we Uh, tighten our understanding a little bit and we come to uh, understand these passages a little more clearly. 
but there are always questions that must be uh, must be answered. So when we take a look at a passage like Revelation um, 11, one we read, then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff, John says. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And so this raises a number of questions. And I'm just going to go through some of these questions with you. We'll uh, be answering them in the next uh, two or three weeks, I hope. And uh, But it sh- will help you understand to some degree some of the complexity in trying to uh, interpret this passage. First of all, we have to understand the meaning of the word measure. The meaning of the word measure, is this a literal measurement for dimensions or is it used in a figurative or idiomatic sense? Is it used for judgment? Is it used for making a positive evaluation? Or is it used for uh, demarcating a section of the temple that is to be protected by God? Another question that, of course, is that we must answer is who and what is measured, trying to identify the worshipers here uh, and the altar that is mentioned. We also need to decide which temple this is. Is this a figurative use of the word temple, which there are some, not dispensationalists, but some uh, will take it that the temple really represents the church. We don't believe that. But then we have to address the question, is this a heavenly temple or an earthly temple? Everywhere else in the book of Revelation that we see the phrase temple of God, it's the heavenly temple. So we have to address that question. Fourth, what altar is this? Is this the bronze altar or is this the altar of incense? Everywhere else that we have the term altar used in Revelation, it's the altar of incense. Uh, Fifth, who are the worshipers? Are they apostate? Are they tribulation believers? course, we reject the view that uh, the temple represents the church and the worshipers reject the church. So the question here is, are these apostate Jews worshiping in an apostate temple? Are they approved? Are they believers? Are they members of the remnant of Israel during the tribulation period? The sixth question we need to address is, is the temple itself apostate or approved? Is this an apostate temple that has been erected by uh, Jews that are still uh, caught up in the uh, legalism and the religion of Judaism, or is the temple uh, the accurately described as the temple of God and therefore holy because it is the temple of God? Is this approved? Is it a legitimate temple or an illegitimate temple? A seventh question, uh, when does this measuring take place? Is it during the first half of the tribulation, the second half of the tribulation? And then last but not least, is there any significance to the labeling of 42 months, which is what we see uh, down in uh, verse 2, and then a description of the 1,260 days, which is the same period of time, uh, in verse 3. Does that the difference in nomenclature there indicate anything and see all of these interact with each other so you can get yourself in quite a spaghetti bowl of confusion if you uh, uh, if you're studying through all the issues in this particular passage and I'm going to try to somehow cut through the Gordian knot and help everybody to understand what's going on uh, in this passage 
And one little caveat I, I don't want to miss is that even though these are questions that are debated among scholars, men who are men of the text, men who have advanced degrees in Greek and Hebrew and theology, uh, sometimes people get the idea that, well, if all of these seminary-trained PhDs can agree as to the meaning of, of uh, these things in the text, then who am I, just some little opusitor out here with, I barely speak English, and who am I to figure out how all these things come together? Um, unfortunately, we live in an era today where the world view of the culture around us, of postmodernism, uh, has provided a rationale that we can't really know anything for sure, and so all we can really know and understand is our own, our own feelings, our own emotions, so let's not to get too caught up in the analytical details of, of the Bible or any other religious book. Let's just uh, sit around and worship God and worship our feelings and, and just be, be uh, uh, warm and filled and emote and not worry about trying to figure out uh, what the Scripture says. But the Bible doesn't approach knowledge in that way at all. The Bible is written so that we may know. And many times in the Scriptures we have passages that say, these are written that you may know. It doesn't say these are written that you may easily know. It doesn't say these are written that you can know without any study. It just says these are written so that you may know. It involves study. In fact, there are different aspects of different doctrines and branches of systematic theology that took centuries for Christians to work through and to be able to clearly articulate uh, what the scriptures uh, teach. So it is part of our responsibility to continue that process of studying the word. So there's about three things that we ought to recognize are, are at the very foundation of the word of God. First of all, this as well as any other passage in Scripture, this was revealed that we might know. God had a purpose in revealing this, that we might know these things and that we are to study these things so that they will be a part of our understanding of his plans and his purposes. Second assumption we need to make is that the Scripture was revealed in a way that we might know. It's not revealed to obscure or cover it is revealed to uncover. In fact, that's the meaning of revelation, is to uncover something, to disclose something. So the scriptures are written in a way that we might understand them. And third, it is uh, revealed in a way that demands that we study it and we study it consistently. God has revealed his word in a way that demands that we constantly go back and reread it and restudy it and reevaluate it. If God had given the word to us in a systematic theology, then we would go read the systematic theology, say, oh, I know all the answers, and we'd never look at it again. But God revealed the word in such a way that it demands that we constantly go back, constantly go back, and constantly read and study. And as we do that, the Holy Spirit works within that process to reveal and to open up to us the, the meaning of his word. And so it demands a dedication, it demands a commitment, and it comes back to what I pointed out last time when we were looking at, at chapter 10 when the apostle took and, and he ate the, the little book, that that depicts the reception of God's word and the importance of God's word in our lives. And we can't grow spiritually if we don't study the word of God and come to learn it and to understand it. 
And then last if, assumption is that if we reject the possibility of knowledge, and trust me, that happens a lot. It happens, uh, I talked to Ike about some of the students that uh, uh, he sits in class with over at Dallas Seminary. I talked to my friend Tommy Ice as he teaches at Liberty, and that there are always students who come in and sit in the classroom who argue these very points, and they don't really believe that you can know for sure what the Bible says and because they've been so infected by the culture at large. But to reject the possibility of knowledge really means five things. It means, first of all, that you have a small God who can't communicate clearly. If you don't think you can know what the Bible says, then what you're really saying is God didn't make it clear. Somehow in the process, something got got mucked up, and, and we can't really know it for sure. So let's not get too caught up in the details. If you don't have, uh, you, you may have a small God. A second, second aspect would be that you have an impotent God who could not design man in such a way that he could understand what God was going to communicate to him. See, God as a creator God created man, as David says, he was fearfully and wonderfully made. And God created each of us in such a way that we have the capability, the ability, all the, the, the things that we need, all the faculties we need to be able to understand, comprehend, and apply what he says. He didn't goof up. So he not only communicates clearly, but he designed us in a way so that the receiver works and we can understand what he has to say. Now, people may not like it, they may try to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They may rebel against it, but we know what he is saying. A third problem that we have if we reject the possibility of knowledge is that we're really saying that there is a flaw with the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ promised that the Holy Spirit would come and guide us in all truth. And what we're really saying, if we say, well, we can't really know for sure what that passage means, is we're saying, well, the Holy Spirit's just not sufficient enough to understand his word. And what we have done forth in terms of five things that are implied by rejecting knowledge, we've elevated our own subjectivity and arrogant agenda to a level that, that, uh, uh, where we have refused to let God work through that garbage in our soul to clarify truth. And this happens with so many people. They are so arrogant. They're so focused on their own agenda, their own independence from God and their own rebellion that they look at the Word of God and, and what it says doesn't fit what they want it to say. And so they, they say, well, we can't know what it says. And so what they've done is to elevate their own arrogance, their own subjectivity to such a level that they won't allow God to work through the garbage in their soul to clarify the truth. And then last but not least, one of the things that we are saying when we reject the possibility of knowledge is that we're just too lazy to do the work. We're too lazy to study the Word. We're too lazy to make it a priority in our life. And so we would much rather take the path of least resistance and go to some church where we can hold hands, sing kumbaya, rock back and forth, listen to a praise and worship band, and just get all of our emotions stimulated and feel good and not have to worry about thinking. It's hard enough to think, but that pastor wants us to think and identify all this stuff and, and figure out and listen to stuff related to Greek and Hebrew. Somebody was telling me yesterday that um, 
about uh, being in a in a denomination where uh, the Sunday school material used to refer to uh, the do word studies and referred to the original languages. And when that person who wrote the curriculum uh, retired or moved on, he was replaced by somebody who didn't ever refer to word studies or the original languages. And uh, Sunday school teachers in the church were glad that we don't have to worry about all that Greek and Hebrew stuff anymore. Uh, we, can just not, we can just study God's word and figure out what it means. How you can figure out God's word without doing work in the original languages, I'll never know. So that brings us to a couple of important principles. First of all, you can't apply what you don't know. Second, you can't know something apart from study. Nothing in life worth doing and doing well uh, is absent of study, learning, working at it. And as we study, we recognize that study takes time, it takes energy, it means we have to make it a priority, and it involves a lot of mental, mental sweat, and when it comes to the Word of God, it involves a lot of prayer. And sometimes it, it just takes time to figure out uh, what the Scripture says. So sometimes we have to dig around in a lot of details just to figure out what is going on in the Word. But the rewards that come are truly tremendous. So as we get into Revelation 11, let's focus on what the first couple of verses say. Then there was given me a measuring rod, John says. And this first statement here is a passive verb, which doesn't tell us who does the giving. It's probably the strong angel of chapter 10, but it could be the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's just not mentioned here. Uh, But uh, the point that the writer is making is not about who gives but the fact that there is this measuring rod that is given uh, to John and the task that he is supposed to uh, carry out. Uh, He's given a measuring rod like a staff. It is compared to a staff, and this word for staff is a word that can be used in any number of different ways. So the restricting element is this first word for the measuring rod. It's a uh, Greek word kalamos refers to a type of reed that grows down in the um, along the Jordan River Valley and would grow to a height of maybe 15 or 20 feet. It was used to uh, uh, carve pens. It was used in order to uh, make walking staffs. Uh, it was used to create uh, measuring devices like yard, what we would call yardsticks. The word for staff is the word rabdos, which is used of a, of a rod or a staff. It may indicate the uh, scepter of a ruler. It may indicate a shepherd's staff or a traveler's walking staff. And it may connote authority and, admin, and administration in discipline or in Judgment. So these terms uh, don't give us a lot of clues, but they do indicate some some kind of measuring that's going to uh, take place. And then John is given instructions. He is told that he is to measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship in it. Now, as you can tell, when we get into this, we're going to have to dis- figure out what temple he's talking about, what altar he's talking about, and what and who these worshipers are. 
But before we can really answer that, we have to understand what the meaning of measure is. And this is a the Greek word metreo, where we get our English word uh, metric or metrics, having to do with types of measurement. And it's used in different ways in the scripture. It's used in the sense of just taking a literal physical measurement to get the dimensions of something. It's used for evaluating something or someone. It's used to speak of apportioning or dealing something out or distributing something. And it's used in the sense of to think or to learn or to uh, know about something. It's used in Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, uh, for a synonym of judging. There Jesus said, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, there's our word metreo, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So here it has that idea of evaluation and even judgment. In the Old Testament, we have a parallel passage or similar situation to the one we have in Revelation 11 in Zechariah chapter 2 uh, verses 1 through 4 a man is uh, told to measure Jerusalem and here it's a picture of God's judgment on the city during the time of the tribulation Zechariah writes then I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold there was a man with a measuring line in his hand And so I said to him, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out and another angel was coming out to meet him. And then in verse 5, for I declares the Lord will be a wall of fire around her and I will be the glory in her midst. So this measurement of Jerusalem is related to God's uh, protection, his evaluation of Jerusalem and then his protection, it relates to the fact that Jerusalem is viewed as God's city, God's possession. And it is his possession and his city, whether it is apostate or not. God has set his name on the Temple Mount, the Old Testament says, that uh, Mount Zion is his. And this is true whether uh, it is whether the Jews are obedient or disobedient, whether they are apostate or not. This is reflected in the terminology we often use to refer to Israel as the Holy Land or Jerusalem as the Holy City or the Temple Mount as the Holy Mount. That word holy is from the word group in both Hebrew and Greek that indicates something that is set apart to the service of God. It doesn't mean that it is necessarily righteous or that what is going on there at any particular time is right, but it is emphasizing the fact that this uh, area has been set aside in God's plans and purposes, and God has set uh, his name on that. Now, when we look at our context in Revelation 11, 1 and 2, we realize that to understand this idea of measure that seems to indicate an evaluation marking off something as God's, that uh, it's contrasted to verse 2. That's really our clue as to how to understand this. John is to measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship in it, but he is not to measure the outer courtyard 
outside the temple, he is to leave that unmeasured because that has been given to the nations, literally the Gentiles, and they will tread underfoot. That's an image of military domination and control. They will tread underfoot the holy city. Notice it's called the holy city. Jerusalem is referred to as a holy city even in this time when it is under Gentile domination. Tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now that phrase, leave out, is a Greek word meaning to cast out. It's a word that's used in the uh, gospel narratives to refer to casting out a demon. It's ekbalo, and it's really a play on words here to emphasize the, what, what uh, is being said. The, outer, the outside court cast out, if you were to translate it literally. The outside court cast out. So it emphasizes the separation between the inner area that is measured and all of the other areas that are given over to Gentile domination. And so there is a, it is a picture of rejection that God has rejected the outer courtyard and the Gentile control. And so what we see then in verse 1 is that this is a picture of acceptance or approval on these worshipers in the tribulation temple. So as we summarize what I said about measuring, first of all, the temple of God, the altar, and the worshipers are measured. The Gentiles are not measured. We have to understand that contrast. It could be protection or delineation of ownership or judgment where God is evaluating and approving those worshipers who are uh, within the temple, those who are coming to observe and worship him uh, through the sacrifices of the temple at that time and uh, in contrast to the Gentiles. And the contrast with the Gentiles indicates something positive in relation to the temple, altar worshipers and sacrifices, or something negative in relation to the Gentiles. God has rejected them. Now this leads us to an important question. Why is their worship acceptable? What makes their worship acceptable? You say, wait a minute. At the end of the church age, there is a, the rapture of the church. All believers are removed. The only ones left on the earth are unbelievers. Already in the church age, we see movements by various groups in Israel to rebuild the uh, next temple, uh, the third temple that will be built in um, uh, on the Temple Mount, there's only one little problem, and that is that currently there is uh, uh, the Dome of the Rock is sitting there, which seems to prevent uh, any uh, building of a third temple. But hope springs eternal in the minds of many of those in, in uh, Israel. And you see, looking for it right now, I had it down here, didn't realize it was so far away. Here we go. One of my favorite signs in Jerusalem, outside of the temple store, is uh, they were selling models of the temple, and so the sign reads, pre-third temple sale. Buy now before the temple is rebuilt and prices go up. There are, as I said, there are various groups in Israel whose hope is to rebuild the temple. They have rebuilt much of the furniture that would go into the uh, next temple, and they are 
hopeful of some event taking place that would somehow uh, give them control of the Temple Mount and they would be able to build the, the third temple. Now, they're not accepting Christ as a Messiah. They don't believe that uh, the Messiah has come and that their sins are paid for. So their motivation is wrong. Their desire is wrong. Their spiritual condition is wrong. So why do we say that the worship of these worshipers mentioned in 11.1 is acceptable? And the point that is made throughout the scripture is that acceptable worship is always a matter of the soul relationship with God, not external ritual. And I believe that these worshipers are Jewish believers that accept Jesus as their Messiah once the tribulation has begun and they are involved in, in temple worship and sacrifices. And we'll have to discuss all that next week and the following weeks. But they are involved in that worship as an expression of their relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Passages from the Old Testament that focus on the reality of that heart or soul relationship to God rather than sacrifice are verses such as 1 Samuel 15:22, where, where we read, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. In Psalm 40, verses 6 through 7, we read, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Now, this is a messianic psalm, and it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, but it depicts the fact that the issue is that heart attitude of faith in God, obedience to him uh, more than the externals of sacrifice. Psalm 51, 16, and 17, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. This depicts humility, grace orientation, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Other passages are uh, passages like Jeremiah 7, uh, 22 to 23. Uh, I'm going to skip through some of these. We'll pick a few of them up next time. Hosea 6.6, 6, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And then we read in Micah 6.6-8, 6, 6 With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. For believers of all ages, the issue is that heart or soul relationship to God not the externals of the ritual, uh, even in the Old Testament period. And so these who are worshiping the Lord in the tribulation temple that are approved by God have trusted in Jesus as Messiah, and that is the basis for their approval. So in conclusion, we I comment that, first of all, the temple, the altar, and worshipers are approved. These worshipers will be believing Jews, the remnant during the tribulation 
though they are bringing Levitical sacrifices, and I believe they're not New Covenant sacrifices because the New Covenant's not inaugurated until Jesus returns, though they are bringing Levitical sacrifices to the tribulation temple, they have accepted Jesus as their Messiah, and God approves them because they are justified by faith, not because of their sacrifices. Now, the application we learn comes out of what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John 4, 23 and 24, that the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. When we come together as a body of believers, we come to worship him, and that worship must be that kind of worship that can be approved and accepted by God. There are certain qualifications and conditions that are laid down in the Old Testament for Old Testament worship and in the New Testament for New Testament worship. Here we're told by Jesus that the condition is in spirit and in truth. Actually, that should be understood to be more of an instrumental. It's not in spirit and truth, I believe, but by means of the spirit and by means of the truth. When John uh, uses the end plus the dative construction of both spirit and truth in the Gospel of John. It always has that instrumental sense. We're baptized by means of the Spirit. He mentions in John chapter 1, uh, verse 33, and then in John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, we are sanctified uh, by means of truth. And so John 4:24 says that God is spirit, and those who worship Him must spirit Him, but must worship Him by means of the Spirit, and I believe that's the Holy Spirit, and by means of truth. And that is a qualification for believers in this church age. We must be in fellowship. We must be walking by the Spirit. And that that expresses the condition for our worship to be acceptable and to be approved by God. The standard is truth, which is that which is revealed in God's Word. When we are not walking by the Spirit, we're walking by the flesh, and when we're not walking by means of God's truth, we're walking by means of uh, worldly uh, thinking. And so there's only one way to come to God for salvation, and that's by faith alone in Christ alone. And there's only one way to worship him, and that is by means of the Holy Spirit and by means of truth. Now next time, we'll come back and address the issue of the temple. Which temple is this? Is it heavenly or earthly? And is it apostate or approved? And we'll look at that next week. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we're so thankful that we can come together to be refreshed by your word, to be reminded that our worship of you is based upon what you have done for us, what Jesus Christ did for us, that he solved the sin problem on the cross, and that by simply trusting in him alone, we have eternal life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right where you sit, you can make that most important of all decisions in your life, the decision that affects your eternal destiny. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. He paid for your sins. He paid the penalty in full so that all that is necessary for you to do is to simply believe, to accept, to receive that gift of eternal life from God the Father by virtue of the fact that you understand that only Jesus can provide that because he died on the cross for your sins and that by faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal life. 
Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we're learning about worship, that our worship both individually and corporately needs to fit the qualifications of Scripture, and that all of our lives are to be an act of worship toward you in response to our understanding of your grace in salvation and in the spiritual life. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.